in care group last week, a brother was sharing what he was learning from God's word. And in sharing, he referenced uh, how his wife recently trained for and ran a marathon, a 26, I think 0.2, 26 is enough for me, mile marathon. As he described the preparation along with the actual marathon itself, I felt myself getting winded. I can handle walking and hiking for a few miles, but running a marathon would likely result in me having cardiac arrest. Well, my purpose is not to focus on running a 26-mile marathon. Instead, I want us to consider what, for the Hebrew readers, was a far more grueling race, a necessary race, but one that many were tempted not to run. Throughout Hebrews, the writer presents an apologetic for the Christian faith, and he exhorts his readers to commit to Christ, to come all the way over to faith in Christ. Even so, many were tempted to turn their back and walk away from the faith offered to them. Some of the readers would have struggled to believe the truth, and so the writer is giving truth to them. Others were afraid of the cost of commitment to Christ. They knew that following Christ could result in opposition and even persecution. In our passage today, the writer seeks to motivate his readers to run with endurance the race that is set before them. I ask you to please turn in your copy of God's authoritative, sufficient, life-giving, precious word to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Again, we will be looking at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Today's message is entitled, Running the Race. Running the race, we will consider five truths to embrace as we run the race that the Lord has marked out for us. Five truths to embrace. Let us begin then with truth number one. We are to consider the great cloud of witnesses. We are to consider the great cloud 
of witnesses. Hebrews 12:1a begins, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Therefore points to the previous chapter in which the writer names many Old Testament saints who constitute that great cloud of witnesses. The word is martyron and in the context refers to those who testify, those who witness. We should feel encouraged by the fact that many in the Old Testament have testified to the worth and value of living for Almighty God. Saints of old have committed their way to the Lord even in the face of great persecution. The writer tells us that there were some who were sawn in two, and of such men the world was not worthy. They have believed and shown by their lives that the Lord is worthy of sacrifice, even the sacrifice of their own lives. And so the great cloud of witnesses encourage us to embrace sacrifice for the sake of our Savior. This is perhaps not all that the writer is communicating. He says, we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. In Greco-Roman games, athletes competed in events before roaring crowds. You can hear the noise of the crowds. You can picture the crowds in these Olympic games. Uh, Those who have died in the faith are witnesses who, according to the text, surround us. It is as if they are cheering us on as we seek to run the race. Brothers and sisters, let us be reminded of the fact that there are saints who have gone on ahead of us. Such saints have lived life in this fallen world and have crossed through the river and are now in the celestial city. We are not the only ones having to live life in the fallen world. We are not the only ones experiencing the agony of the race that we are in. Many have gone ahead. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and such witnesses should encourage us as we too run the race. Someday, we will meet these witnesses. When the Lord calls our name and death comes to usher us into the immediate presence of the Prince of Peace, we will have privilege to meet these witnesses. Not only that, we will be reacquainted with loved ones who have trusted in Christ and who have gone on ahead of us. Christian, take heart. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And by God's grace, we too will join that cloud. Our loved ones whom we leave behind will someday have cause for encouragement as they think of us as included in this great cloud. Well, let us turn to truth number two. We are to lay aside every hindrance. 
Hebrews 12, 1b says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, every hindrance. Lay aside is a term used in reference to clothing. As we take off or lay aside a jacket, for example, so we are to take off and lay aside every encumbrance. The term can also be understood in a more forceful way, to rid oneself of, avoid, to be done with, to throw away. We are to get rid of every encumbrance as we seek to live for Christ. The Greek word for encumbrance is agkin. It means bulk, weight, burden, encumbrance, impediment. Young's literal translation translates the word weight. It is that which hinders one from doing something. We are to lay aside anything that hinders us from running the race. The writer is not specifically calling these weights sin. He goes on to say we need to lay aside sin. Here the writer is calling his reader to lay aside all that hinders him from running the race. There may be some things that are not sin that weighs the believer down. Pastor John MacArthur provides helpful insight. Quote, an encumbrance is simply a bulk or mass of something. It is not necessarily bad in itself. Often, it is something perfectly innocent and harmless, but it weighs us down, diverts our attention, saps our energy, dampens our enthusiasm for the things of God. We cannot win when we are carrying excess weight. When we ask about a certain habit or condition, what's wrong with that? The answer is often Nothing in itself. The problem is not what the weight is, but what that weight does. It keeps us from running well and therefore from winning. We are to lay aside every, every encumbrance. We do not pick and choose. No matter the weight, no matter the encumbrance, we are to lay it aside the writer would have had specific hindrances in mind, no doubt, but he leaves it up to the reader to discern the hindrances in his own life. But never could he have envisioned the host of hindrances available to us today. As I reflect, I can identify what has been to me hindrances during different seasons of my Christian life. More recently, I have found myself at times too caught up in politics, elections, conspiracy, COVID, vaccinations, social issues, so on and so forth, all of which can be a hindrance if given too much focus and attention. When fixing my eyes on these matters, I run the risk of failing to run the race marked out for me. 
I think of the hindrance of entertainment as an example. There is nothing wrong with entertainment, but we cross a line whenever entertainment becomes a hindrance to running the race. There have been times when I have paid too much attention to the Boston Red Sox. I am a Boston Red Sox fan. One might even say that I have at times fixed my eyes on my favorite baseball team. May I say, friends, that no baseball team or sport, for that matter, or anything or anyone else should carry more weight than the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to how Kevin DeYoung addresses entertainment in a very thought-provoking article, and I quote, I dare say you could not find an Orthodox Christian writer or pastor before the 20th century or maybe prior to 1965 who would countenance, countenance, support, admit as acceptable. You would not find one who would countenance a fraction of what we consider moderate entertainment today. If they were too rigid at times, certainly we are far too relaxed to the impoverishment of our churches and of our own souls. We have grown accustomed to what should shock us. May I ask, what hinders you today? What are the weights that you need to lay aside? Video games? Young people, I'm talking to you. Social media? Television? Personal hobbies? Too much focus on diet and exercise, not enough attention to diet and exercise. Um, I don't know what might be hindering you in running the race, but the text is clear. Let us lay aside every encumbrance. And so this brings us to the third truth to embrace as we seek to run the race. Truth number three, we are to lay aside sin. We are to lay aside sin. Got to make sure my phone is turned off. In Hebrews 12, 1c, the writer says, we are to lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us. We are to lay aside, to throw off, to get rid of, to be done with sin. Sin is failure to live according to the divine standard, God's standard. Sin is missing the mark. It includes attitudes, thoughts, and behaviors forbidden by the Lord as well as failure to do what the Lord commands us to do. Theologians refer to these sins as sins of commission and sins of omission, and I think it's helpful for us to think this way. Well-known pastor and author John Piper provides a helpful description of sin. Listen to what John Piper says. He begins with the question, what is sin? 
It is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. This is sin. Piper does not focus on what we do. Rather, he focuses here on what we fail to do. He focuses on sins of omission. Failing to do what we are called to do is often accompanied by doing what we are forbidden to do. And the classic example, I think, would be Adam and Eve. Had they spent their time eating from the trees God allowed them to eat, they would not have eaten from the one forbidden tree. Some folks reflect on their lives in a self-righteous manner. They begin with their list of thou shalt nots and conclude they are innocent of committing any of those such sins. They view themselves as good people. And such folks might say, and I've heard people say this, I'm a good person. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't killed a person. And they focus on their list of what they must not do. And because they haven't done those things, they conclude that they are a good person. But are they really good? Piper's approach of focusing on what are we are called to do has, has the power to helpfully humble the self-righteous person. He might even agree with the Apostle Paul's assessment in Romans chapter 3 where he declares, there is none righteous. What about me? Not even one. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Again, I submit that our understanding of sin should be informed by not only those things we are commanded not to do, but also those things we are called and commanded to do. Our understanding of sin should include both sins of omission as well as sins of commission. We should be asking ourselves, what are the sins that I need to lay aside? Are there sins of omission that I am guilty of? Are there sins of commission that I am guilty of? Another mistake folks often make is to focus their understanding of sin on behavior rather than thoughts and attitudes. A person may tell himself, 
I haven't fornicated, I haven't committed adultery, but that same person views inappropriate images and creates wicked fantasies in his own heart and mind. That same person suppresses what our Lord declares in Matthew 5.27, where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Heart. Or another person might say, I have never hurt or killed anyone. And they focus their attention on the deed and not the attitude of the heart. They forget that they fail to realize that Jesus declares in Matthew 5.22 that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. The writer of Hebrews calls his readers to lay aside sin. And we are to lay aside, put off, cast away, remove, far from us, sin. Sins of attitude and thought, word, and deed are to be laid aside. Sins of commission as well as omission are to be laid aside. And such sins will not go down easily. After 30 years of being a Christian, In the early days, I thought, just give me a few years. Just give me a few years. I'll have this thing licked. I really thought, I honestly, sincerely thought, I was just a a few years away. And here I am 30 years later, and of all of the sinners... I am the foremost. Sins will not go down easily. The writer says we are are to lay aside the sin which so easily entangles us. Sin is not always so easily defeated. We battle with the remnants of indwelling sin. The old man rears his ugly head. We may experience victory for months and even years, perhaps even decades, but we are never immune from sin. And that is why we look so forward to glory. That is one of the reasons we look so forward to laying aside the earthly tent and being clothed in immortality. We look forward to that day when our salvation is complete. Our commitment to laying aside sin uh, needs to be and is an ongoing commitment. We are committed to daily activities. We are committed to waking up, showering, brushing our teeth, I hope, getting dressed, and drinking our cup of coffee. Very important. We should be more committed We should be far more committed to laying aside the sin that so easily entangles us. Such a commitment is necessary if we are to run the race that is set before us. And so let's turn to the fourth truth for us to embrace. Uh, Truth number four, we are to run with endurance. We are to run with endurance. Hebrews 12, 1c reads, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run. 
is present tense, active voice, subjunctive mood. It expresses continuation or repetition. It is something that we are to keep on doing. It expresses continuation, repetition, along with urgency or expectation. It takes on the force of a command. It is a call to ongoing action. It is a command to run. Let us run. Elsewhere, the Bible describes the Christian life as a walk. We are to walk in the manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. In this passage, we are to run. Running involves an exertion of energy. It can be tiring to run, but run we must. And this is especially applicable to the readers to those who would have received the book of Hebrews as they were tempted to run in the opposite direction. They're being commanded to run the race that has been marked out for them. The writer of Hebrews views the running, he calls his readers too, as difficult. The word for race is agona, from where we get agony. It is a race, an agonizing race. It is an agony. The race is agonizing. It concludes the challenge of laying aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles. This is not always easy. Running the race demands training and equipping. It requires technique, endurance, motivation. This is why we consider the great cloud of witnesses as we lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles. Running also requires endurance. The word that is being used is hypomenes. It can be translated perseverance. Run with endurance, run with perseverance. We must endure the race that we are running. We must persevere. Quitting is never an option. Do not quit. We must run until we reach the finish line. This is the writer's burden for his readers. The writer of Hebrews understands that running the race is no easy task, and that is why he emphasizes this need for endurance. The word for endurance is in the prominent position in the Greek text. Literally, we would read, through endurance, through endurance, let us run the race set before us, agony. We should not be surprised that living for the Lord can be difficult, running the race, tiring. There may be times when in our flesh we are tempted to give up. The challenges mount, the pressure is strong, the enemy attacks, the opposition mocks, the body grows weak. As I get older, I'm feeling that. And as I observe my dad, who's 89, and his girlfriend of 40 years, who's 82, and their health declining and suffering dementia and Alzheimer's, I see how the body grows weak. The old man rears his ugly head. And dwelling sin seeks to drag us down. Running the race is not for the faint of heart. It demands endurance, and we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Child 
of God. Do you find that running the race can be hard at times? Do you feel the strain and agony as you engage the race? Do you find yourself getting entangled at times with sin and tripping up? Have you suffered setbacks? Are you failing to make progress, the progress that you had hoped for? Well, take heart. The Bible never said the Christian life would be an easy life. Our passage today describes a need to lay aside encumbrances, every encumbrance, and sin, the sin that so easily entangles, lay it aside as we seek to run with endurance the race set before us. But that is not all that we are being called to do. The writer of Hebrews moves to encourage us. He's already offered some encouragement, but here it comes. He knows we are weak. He knows that we cannot run in our own strength. He knows that we need help, and he is about to present the help we need. And this brings us to truth number five, that we must embrace as we run the race. Truth number five, we are to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus. We do not fix our eyes on self as we run the race. This would result in failure. We have no power in and of ourselves to run the race successfully. And we need to be careful not to focus too much attention on what we are commanded not to do. The more we focus on what we are not to do, the more likely we will do what we are not to do. Yes, we are responsible to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles, but we must do so with our eyes on King Jesus. Child of God, Christian, fix your eyes on Jesus. Focus your attention on Christ. Consider the gospel. And this is what the writer of Hebrews directs us to do in Hebrews 12, 2a, when he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus as we run the race. We are fixing our eyes on Jesus. We are directing our attention heavenward. The participle is present tense, active voice. We must engage in action. Fixing our eyes on Jesus is critical for running the race set before us. When one runs a race, his focus is on the finish line. Likewise, our focus must be on the Lord Jesus Christ. Without him in view, we would trip up. Without him in view, we have no strength. We have no ability. We have no hope. Uh, 
We have no power without Christ in view. The Apostle Paul commands the Colossians to keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. He says, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we too will be revealed with him in glory. If we are to run well, we must fix our eyes on Jesus. This implies knowing we must know who he is and what he has accomplished for us. We must contemplate his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. We must know Jesus truly as revealed to us through his word. Not some man-made understanding of who Jesus is. There is a lot of man-made understandings of who Jesus is. We must understand who he is truly as revealed to us through his word, through special revelation. Apart from this book, we do not know who Jesus is. He has revealed himself through his authoritative, sufficient, inerrant, perfect word of God. And so we behold him as he reveals himself through the word of God. Regarding Jesus, the Bible says that we can do all things through Jesus who strengthens us. The word of God teaches as we behold him, as we Look at Christ, we are being transformed. Scripture reminds us that the gospel and Christ is the good news. He is the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. This highlights the need to know Jesus. The apostle Paul was totally transformed when he saw Jesus. On the road to Damascus, the apostle Peter was empowered to walk on water as he fixed his eyes on Jesus. The minute he took his eyes off of Christ, he began to sink. But praise God that Christ was there to rescue him. And scripture is filled with examples of people who through faith in Jesus experienced God and his power to transform And so the writer of Hebrews gives charge to fix our eyes on Jesus, and then he follows up with helpful descriptions. Let me read. The author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, consider him who has endured such Hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Let's take a moment to unpack these descriptions. Description number one, Jesus is the author of faith. The Greek word is archigon. Its meaning includes leader, ruler, prince, instigator, originator, founder. He is the author of faith. The same word is found in Hebrews 2.10, where the writer declares, for it was fitting for him, it was fitting for God in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. 
Jesus is described as the author of the faith. It was his idea in counsel with the triune God to enter this wicked world and to tabernacle among fallen humanity. It was his idea to be crucified on the cross to appease the wrath of Almighty God. It was his plan to be punished for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquity. Through his bloody sacrifice on the cross, our sin is atoned for. He has purchased us with his own blood. The Lord has forgiven us all of our sins. If we are in Christ, past, present, and future have been forgiven. God has cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. He counts them against us no longer. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because of Christ and for his name's sake. And Christ was raised from the dead proving that his sacrifice was acceptable to Almighty God. Through his resurrection, we have confidence that we too will rise from the dead someday. We who were dead in transgression and sin now have life, and a future day is coming when we will experience the resurrected life to the full degree. And the power that raised Christ from the dead is now the power at work in us, enabling us to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles and empowering us to run with endurance the race that God has set before us. And we who are in Christ, like the great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, we can testify to the fact that the author of the faith is mighty to save Thus, he is more than the author of the faith. He is the author of our faith. He is the one who scripted our story. And had Jesus not authored the script of our salvation, the script of our faith, we would not have any faith at all. The faith objectively and our faith subjectively has been authored by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, being the author of faith, carries an additional meaning. He serves as the chief example. He is the ultimate example. He has shown us by his own life how to live. The readers of Hebrews needed examples. They needed people that they could look to, and such examples have been amply supplied in chapter 11. But the Lord Jesus, he is the ultimate example, the most important example that the readers needed to look to, the one that would have given them the ability they needed to do what they were called to do. And if the Hebrew readers are to succeed in their surrender to God, they needed And the writer knows this. They needed a fresh look at the author of their faith. That's what the writer does throughout Hebrews. He gives them Jesus. He shows them Jesus time and time and time again. He does nothing but direct their attention to Jesus because he knows if they can behold him, they will surrender. If they can behold him, they will run the race that has been marked out for them. 
So he knows that they need a fresh look at the author of their faith. This is exactly what they are given as we consider the remaining descriptions. Jesus is not just the author of faith, the faith, our faith. He is also the perfecter of faith. Description two, Jesus is the perfecter of faith. The Greek can be translated completer or finisher. It speaks of one who brings something to a successful conclusion. The faith through which we are saved was perfected through Jesus. The same word is used back in Hebrews 2.10 where we read, For it was fitting for him, God, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. Hebrews 2.10 declares that Jesus was perfected through suffering. And Jesus was not the perfect sacrifice until he actively gave his life and died on a cross in our place. Through his death, he became the perfect sacrifice. In this sense, Jesus was perfected. And through his death, he became the perfecter, the finisher, the completer of faith. This dovetails with his last words as recorded in John 19.30. The apostle John writes these words, when Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus declared, it is tetelestai. It is finished, completed. What? What was finished? What did Christ complete? The work necessary to secure our salvation was completed when Jesus, through his shed blood, took upon himself the punishment that we deserve. There is now no longer any sacrifice needed for sin. Jesus is the once for all sacrifice needed to secure forever our salvation. In him we have eternal life and we will not be condemned. We have passed over from death and into life. It is forever. It is eternal. And Christ became perfected in the sense that salvation was perfected when he sacrificed himself for our sin. And being the perfect sacrifice for our sin, he also became the perfecter of faith, the faith, our faith. There would be no faith apart from the cross of Christ. And so the faith by which we are saved was perfected through our Lord's finished work on the cross. The writer of Hebrews is gospel-centered in an effort to motivate the readers to run the race. And this gospel centrality continues with description three. Description number three, Jesus endured the cross with an attitude of joy. Jesus endured the cross with an attitude of joy. The passage says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, the manner in which Jesus died was shameful. In the events leading to the crucifixion, Jesus was put to shame, falsely accused, beaten, spat upon, mocked, crowned with a crown of thorns, forcefully led to the mount of crucifixion. Soldiers undressed our Lord, laid him upon the cross, and they drove spike-sized nails through his hands and feet. Then they hoisted the cross and stood staring at the grotesque sight of a man beaten and bathed in his own blood. Make no mistake. Our Lord Jesus experienced a humiliation beyond comprehension when he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin. Yet our text tells us that for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus thought little about the shame he endured that day. Earlier in the day, perhaps the night before, Jesus, aware of the fate that would befall him, prayed fervently in the Garden of Gethsemane. Blood dripped from his brow as he agonized over his fate. He knew he was about to drink from the full cup of God's unmitigated wrath. But he also knew that in drinking from the cup of wrath, he would secure salvation for all who would repent of their sin and place their trust in him. Jesus knew his sacrificial death was our only hope for salvation and the restored relationship with the triune God of the universe. And because of this, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. Greater love has no man than this. What was the joy set before him? The salvation of vile, wretched, hell-deserving sinners. Jesus looked into your eyes when taken from the garden and made subject to horrendous humiliation. Jesus looked beyond the cross and saw multitudes from every nation, tribe, and tongue, delivered from the guilt and power of sin and brought into a relationship with the triune God of the universe. This is at least part This is at least in part the joy that was set before Jesus as he endured the cross. We know this because during the Lord's Supper, Jesus had poured his heart out to his disciples as well as to his father during his high priestly prayer. Throughout the evening, Jesus foretold his crucifixion and expressed his desire for his disciples to experience the love and joy of God. 
In John 15, 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. In John 16, 20, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and you will lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. What is the catalyst? What is it that causes the sorrow to be turned into joy? It is the thought of sins forgiven that the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the thought that they are eternally secure with the Lord, that their sins are atoned for, they're forgiven, and they will go to heaven when they die, that their Lord is raised up bodily from the dead. In John 16, 22, Jesus declares, You too now have sorrow. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one takes your joy away from you. No one. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, 13, Jesus prays, But now I come to thee. He's praying to the Father. And there's much that he says. We are just honing in on one particular section of his prayer. But now I come to thee. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Part of the joy set before Jesus was knowing that through his sacrifice, God's elect would experience the joy of sins forgiven and being brought into a relationship with the triune God of the universe. The Olympic athlete runs a race with the goal of crossing the finish line and winning a prize for Jesus. The cross was the finish line by which we are saved and beyond which he is exalted. And if Jesus could endure the cross with an attitude of joy, we can, with eyes fixed on Jesus, run the race marked out for us. And we can run that race with an attitude of joy as we gaze into eternity and as we contemplate the fact that the day will come when we will transition and we will behold him face to face. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Keep in mind that the Hebrew readers were staring in the face of persecution. Believers were being imprisoned for their faith in Christ. The stakes were high, the cost great, and the Hebrew readers needed to look away from persecution and to fix their eyes on Jesus in order to successfully run the race set before them. The joy that was set before the Lord includes the salvation of God's elect, but it also includes the fact that on the other side of his death, the Father would be pleased, he would be exalted and glorified, and the Son himself would be exalted as well. We see the Lord's exaltation in the fourth description, description number four, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. The text says that Christ has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What this implies is that the Lord who died and was buried was raised up and then he ascended into heaven. 
It is in heaven that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He now has all authority. He reigns as king of kings and lord of lords, reigning from his throne on high. And from there he serves as our great high priest, having entered into the eternal tabernacle. He is our advocate and he intercedes for us, our advocate and our intercessor. When we fall into sin, he pleads our case before the Father. But apart from our need for his advocacy, he is always interceding for us. He prays for us. And the Father always answers the prayers of his Son. If this is the case, then we have every reason to run with endurance the race that has been marked out for us. Dear Christian, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. If we are to succeed in running the race, we must fix our eyes on the one who has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, let us consider a fifth description. Description number five, Jesus endured hostility. Jesus endured hostility. The fact that Jesus endured hostility has already been implied. We don't have to unpack it that much more anymore. It's been implied. The writer now draws attention to this fact, though, to motivate his readers. We are commanded to consider, to think about, to brood upon, to give thought to the fact that Jesus faced opposition during his earthly ministry. The readers themselves were facing opposition. They knew they would face hostility for their commitment to Christ, and they were to derive encouragement and courage and strength from their Lord who faced great hostility by sinners against himself. We must never lose sight when sinned against or persecuted for the cause of Christ that our Lord himself was sinned against. Brothers and sisters, we are in the midst of a cultural clash, clash that has intensified the past few years. Below the surface are differing views of freedom. Bible-believing Christians see freedom as a freedom from sin and a freedom to follow the Lord in obedience to his commands through the power of the gospel, we are free, free from sexual sin, free from racial divides, free from gender confusion. We are free from sinful hedonism. We are free to love, serve, and obey the Lord in accord with his authoritative and sufficient word. We call this freedom. But the world opposes our understanding of freedom. And such opposition comes in the forms of LGBTQ, woke, gender choice, worldly hedonism, and pro-choice. And when we bring God's word to bear on these matters, we run the risk 
of facing great hostility. But take heart, Christian, consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself. And here is the reason. So that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Do you struggle with growing weary and losing heart? Fix your eyes. Consider him. Focus on Christ. Behold him, Lamb of God slain. See him raised up from the dead, ascended, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. King of kings, Lord of lords, all authority. Behold your Lamb, your Savior, your Christ. Final description, we're almost done. Give me a minute. Jesus provides encouragement. I think that by now this description needs no explanation. Every description of Jesus so far is designed for our encouragement. Jesus is the author of faith. Jesus is the perfecter of faith. Jesus is the one who, for the joy set before him, endured the humiliation of the cross. Jesus was raised up from the dead, ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And with these descriptions in mind, we are issued the final command to consider Christ and the fact that he endured hostility by sinners against himself so that we grow not weary and lose heart. So take heart, dear Christian, take heart. Look to Jesus. You will discover in him the encouragement you need as you run with endurance the race marked out for you during these dark and difficult days. As we run the race marked out for us, let us consider the great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and let us lay aside the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with endurance. And as we do, let us fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. That brother in my care group used his wife's marathon to illustrate what he was learning from God's word. We must focus on the finish line if we hope to complete a marathon. Likewise, we must fix our eyes on Jesus as we run with endurance the race marked out for us. I was greatly encouraged by my brother and his wife during care group last week. I pray that you feel encouraged by the passage that we have studied today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would arrest the attention of my brothers and sisters with the word that has just been read and explained, preached. Use this to give strength to us throughout the week. Help us, Lord, to run the race. Let us encourage each other to run the race. Let us be encouraged to run the race. And all the while, Lord, let us do so with our eyes on you. Give us eyes to see you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.